Hi friends, it's Nate. Five years ago, I started Almost Heretical for those of you that are reimagining and rethinking the Bible and your faith. Before this episode starts, I'm seriously going to make this super quick. I wanted to let you know that we have a whole second podcast that we do. We also do quarterly Zoom calls where you can talk with Shelby and myself in a private Facebook group where Shelby and I and a couple hundred other listeners all process this stuff together. If all of that would be helpful for you, would you consider supporting the show for $5 a month? There are costs associated with the show, and your support would mean so much as we try to keep Almost Heretical going and try to help more people going through a faith transition. You can become a supporter at almostheretical.com. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Almost Heretical, the place where we provide biblical scholarship to those relearning the Bible and rethinking their faith, and we're so glad that you're with us today. Been a bit of a a break for us. We had a baby, and those of you who are patrons of the show know all about this because we've been talking about it in the private Facebook group. We've been sharing pictures in there. Um, The baby will be coming on to the next Zoom call we do, so make sure you're RSVP'd for that at almostheretical.com. But yeah, that was in mid-November. And we are recovering. And Shell, how are you doing? Doing great. We've just been trying to get one solid nap enough to be able to record in. So I think hopefully we're there. Yeah. And another kind of announcement, I guess, is that we are entering the sixth year of the show. Or is it the seventh year? We released the show in January 2018. Started recording in 2017. Yeah, so 2018, that would be, this is, we've yeah, done yeah. six years so now. this is the this seventh This would be the seventh year, year of oh, the show. Man. Which is crazy. I shared more thoughts on the latest Utterly Heretical episode. So go check that out. It's our second podcast that we do for supporters. But that's a long ride. I mean, seven years. Think about the things that have happened in the last six or seven years just even politically, and uh, I think just the landscape of shows similar to this, um, not maybe as focused on the Bible, just the angst of leaving or reimagining your faith. There are so many shows like that out there, and uh, so I just want to say thank you to all those who have stuck with us and kept supporting the show. We try to be that unique voice that is not just reimagining faith, but also reimagining the Bible as well, and having that be our primary focus on this show. So that's what we've been doing. We've been kind of going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I sound like an old school preacher now, but and, and just seeing what, what are things we've been missing. If we look at this as an ancient text, what are things we've been missing? What are, what are things we can see a different way? So that has led us to, drumroll, Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Does, I do feel like I'm preaching a sermon or something. But um, if you've been tracking along with us, we've been doing a bit of a Through the Bible series and uh, spent the first several episodes on creation and the fall. And I mean, those are incredibly significant kind of sets the tone for the entire rest of the bible and the the gospel as we know it or we're taught it or so we think go listen to the episodes but anyway i'm in this through the bible series obviously i i'm not going to actually walk us through every single verse that would just there's too many boring ones for that to be worthwhile but uh so i'm actually going to just kind of skip to my next passage of interest because being the the one doing the series i get to just kind of pick that which is fun So I'm glazing over Cain and Abel and some of that initial humans on the earth stuff. I guess the only thing I'll say on that is, you know, those are like Adam and Eve archetypal figures. There's no evidence that they were actually real people. Um, There's stories that just help lay the foundation for what the world is and how it came to be the way it is. It's ingrained, though, when you you think of Adam Um, and Eve. I mean, 
mean, even our eight-year-old, just the assumption, she understands evolution. And we've looked at the, her name is Lucy. So we've looked at the Lucy fossils, bones. I don't, I'm probably using the wrong term from a couple million years ago. So she, she knows that. And then also trying to make these two things work together at the same yeah. time. It is so. funny at that age how you can just hold both of those beliefs and they don't seem to contradictory yet. Right. So Genesis 6. Yeah. So Genesis 6 is, is a, a weird one. One that it's funny that we're focusing on it because it's probably one that gets skipped most often when a church maybe would walk through the Bible. It's the the watchers and the Nephilim and the giants and that verse. So I know that old episodes have touched on that on Almost Heretical too, but uh, it happened to be a focus of mine in my master's degree. So I just had to dig back in. Yeah, and if you want to check that out, it's actually what we started the whole show with, speaking of, you know, six years ago. That's the the first series we did on the show was about the divine realm, divine beings. The heavenly realm is what Michael Heiser Mm -hmm. calls it. And he went on to be on Bible Project as well, and they unpacked it, which is cool to see it get, you know, a bigger, I guess, platform. Um, But we did that six years ago on the show talking about, yeah, the divine realm and maybe taking down the high places. Maybe it was actually temples to these gods and that kind of... So anyways, there's a lot there. There's an episode called uh, Maybe God is More Okay with Other Religions Than We Are. Um, Go check (laughs) some of that early stuff out if you want to. Yeah, and so we're not really going to be retouching on much of what was already talked about. It's going to be more stuff that I find interesting and going to have a little bit more to do with uh, gendered elements within those texts. So let's get into it. Genesis 6, I'll just read the, the four verses real quick. It says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever. Just pause there for a second, because I think I always, you know, as a kid reading this or youth or whatever, I just thought sons of God, like we're sons of God, mm-hmm. you know, it's just talking about men. So the, the daughters married the, the sons, um, not, you know, in a weird way, but just like the the, yeah. the boys married the girls. <laughs> um, and I thought that's, I thought that's what that was saying. Um, but really that sons of God is talking about something else. Yeah. I mean, there are are a a couple scholars that think maybe this is just a euphemism for human men, but the overwhelming response is that, especially considering the tons of additional literature in the ancient world about these verses, which we'll get to, that, yeah, these are some kind of divine being. Also, you know, we're very familiar with the term son of God. I mean, overly familiar. You know, that's definition we have for Jesus, and then, yeah, it's extended to us. But we have to keep in mind that the New Testament had not been written yet. None of it had occurred. And if you think about just the Old Testament, this phrase, sons of God, doesn't occur nearly as much and not at all in that context. So it needs to have a new perspective brought to that for us. But yeah, also... Okay, interrupted. You were going into verse three. Yes. uh, The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were heroes of old, men of renown. There's just a lot going on in these verses that... For people who, you know, like you and me, and many of our listeners have grown up in the Bible, I would say, I mean, before I studied this, I had really no idea what was going on here. Like, I would have read those verses and just been, probably just moved on because I just had no idea where to start. Like, what are the Nephilim? Who are the sons of God? Why are we talking about this? Why are they heroes of old, men of renown? I mean, I think I probably thought Nephilim were dinosaurs at some point, probably when I was a kid. I don't I don't know. Like the behemoth? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Hi. 
Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter, co-host of the Leaving Eden podcast, and I was raised in a cult. I signed purity pledges. I cried at the altar. I went out door-to-door soul winning, and I didn't own a pair of jeans until I was 20 years old. I saw it all and did it all as I grew up completely immersed, pun fully intended, in the independent fundamental Baptist movement. With my co-host Gavriel Hakohen, I unpack all of this from the hilarious to the traumatic back to the hilarious on the Leaving Eden podcast. New episodes release every Monday on all podcast streaming platforms. We recommend new listeners. Start by checking out episode 57, in which we discuss the bite model and give an overview of my personal story. Right. So it's uh, it's it's a weird passage, but the reality is it this is just a brief version these four verses are a brief version of what can be known as the watcher's myth like if you're looking into ancient literature and you want to learn more about this the watcher's myth is a very expanded story within ancient literature and here in genesis it's just this tiny little snippet of it kind of setting the stage for uh, if you're if you continue into verse five six seven it, it transitions right into the noah story essentially it's setting up why did the world become so evil to where God had to destroy it in the flood. But the fact that it's here in such a small version, it kind of alludes to the fact that the people reading it would have been familiar with it already in different contexts and didn't need the whole thing laid out right here. So that is a bit of why it's just so brief and to the point. So to look at this, I'm actually going to walk us through about four other texts in the ancient world that expand on this story to just give us a little bit of insight into it. And where we're going with all this is looking at some of the, like I mentioned, the gender foundations being built in here and how that's going to play into the rest of scripture and how that has led to, you know, our own perspectives of gender today. But also I think, and I think most exciting is just seeing how this story is a window into the literary world of the ancient readers and whether no matter what story we're looking at it's just really cool to me to to start to see just how much is going on in the ancient mind and that these texts are not at all standalone experiences so all right so we'll start with let's see the the place where this story is expanded probably more than any other is in first enoch which if you've done any kind of ancient text exploration you've probably run into first enoch it's one of the most famous and well-known also within first enoch there's several books and the first book the first 36 chapters is called the book of watchers so there you go already i mean 36 chapters on essentially this story so there you go i mean 36 chapters on this story that's summed up in about four verses in here i'm trying to think there's probably some good parallel of like if you were to take, I, I'm not familiar enough with Lord of the Rings, I'm trying to think of Star Wars, if there's, you know, some little snippet somewhere that then someone turns into this huge fan fiction kind of a thing. You're talking about what Disney is planning to do to the entire Star Wars universe, I think. Yeah, that's probably true. The amount of stuff they have planned is crazy. Disney is going to destroy Star Wars. Oh. You heard it here first. Oh. No, you didn't hear it here first. But, okay, I don't um, want to cry on in this episode <laughs> right now. But Money, money, money. So, but yeah, so the Book of Watchers is this massive expansion. The characters have names. They're trying to find Enoch to have him help them get back into relationship with God, if I remember it correctly, because because they realize that they're kind of these bad characters. It's just, it's a funny, funny story. It's it's a very influential story because of the mixing of the divine and the human. A lot of these expansions happen around the Second Temple period, which is, so so Genesis is written long before. And then the second temple period is kind of that period of a couple hundred years right before the time of Jesus, essentially, what we often call the silent period between the Old and New Testament. Um, A lot of these texts were written then or just before then. So if you think of Ezra 
Ezra and Nehemiah, the story, you know, where they're coming back from Babylon, they're trying to reestablish their culture. One of the things that Ezra does is make these very strict rules against intermarriage with Israelite, mm -hmm. the Israelite people and their neighbors. There's a lot of debate about whether those rules actually ended up being followed. I mean, you can tell from the chapters immediately following that a lot of these rules were not actually followed, but the principle is that it's very bad to intermarry with people from these other cultures. So what we see is that the literature that's developing around that time is also emphasizing that same point. And the two key words here are endogamy and exogamy. Endogamy is marriage within a group. Exogamy is marriage outside of the group. So that is one of the biggest underlying emphases of, of these stories. And so in the same way that the Watchers are these divine beings who mate with human women, and then the result is these giants offspring who then, as we'll see from some of these stories, create all sorts of problems. Goliath. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if it's specifically tied to Goliath, but the, he is a giant. And We get into that in the first series on the show too. So if you want to look into that, maybe there's a there are some that believe that Goliath was potentially part of this, which is why he had to be taken down as well. So anyway. Yeah, yeah, I can see why that connection could get made. So Ezra and Nehemiah, that time frame is leading into this era where they're really emphasizing the importance of not intermarrying so that they can kind of reestablish their culture. I mean, down to the basics of even speaking their own language, like encountering problems where Hebrew men who are marrying um, foreign women, the children would be raised not speaking Hebrew. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, were very concerned with the implications of that. So there was all this emphasis, um, and even to the, to the point where the stories are also teaching you know, that intermarriage leads to these really bad things. So that's kind of the one of the main foundations of, of the story. So that's the Book of Watchers in First Enoch, which is very influential, um, very popular. Another significant text is the Book of Giants. I mean, aptly named. The Giants are the offspring of the Watchers. So the Watchers are the supposedly divine beings. The Watchers are the divine ones who we're starting with. They're mating with human women. Their children are the Giants who are also called the Nephilim. It's so basically Watchers make the Nephilim. The sons of God create the Giants. Those are the Watchers and the sons of God. Nephilim, Giants. Those are the, the two groups. It's a little confusing. And just to pause on that too, I don't believe we have found anything archaeologically to support any of this. I don't oh, think no. we, have, we have found bones of some in-between human god being or giant slash human. Like, I don't think we've found anything like this to even support a larger human that used to live or something like that. So emphasis here on myth. These were myths that were believed um, even when you talk about the book of giants, the book of like, this feels like, um, what's that movie? Uh, Cusco and, uh, uh Emperor's New Group. Group. It feels like, okay, just go with me. <laughs> go with me okay. for a second. <laughs> like when the, you know, there's like potions on the wall and it's like the, the dragon <laughs> potion, the <laughs> elephant potion. Like, it feels like these very, like, you'd see this in a cartoon, like the book of giants, the book of, <laughs> it does, it's not it like does. some, You're right. I, I don't know. Can you, can you see that a little bit? So. But didn't yeah, myth. expect Emperor's New Groove to come in here, but <laughs> I think when I was first hearing some of these things six years ago when we were starting the podcast, and um, we you know went in a little different direction with that than we're doing now, but it was very much like a wait. Do I need to believe this? Do I need to? Is this how I have to see the world? And then that continued on throughout the show as we saw things like, wait, am I supposed to believe that there was that this actually existed? Because that's what they believe. Just, yeah, yeah, that's funny. I mean, even when you just brought up that point of like, we haven't found any archaeological, I was like, oh, I didn't even, it didn't, at this point in my understanding of the Bible, 
it did not even cross my mind to need to look for archaeological evidence because at this point it's just very clear to me that these stories are meant to be teaching us something else or they were meant to be teaching their readers something else namely the problems with intermarriage and what happens when you mix things that should not be mixed and um, the importance of the purity of a, of a culture you know that's I don't think that the ancient readers were wondering like where do we find the bones of these giants either they were they knew that the, the purpose of the stories, well, for for one, I mean, most of these expansions were being written during their time. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Star Wars gets made. We're not, we don't suddenly wonder. Well, I guess we do wonder if they're out there, but <laughs> but we know that that's not the point of the, of the movie. I the thought movie... you were going to say, Star Wars gets made and we don't ask ourselves why, you know, why did they make one, two, and three, or you know what I mean? Like, why'd they do it that oh, way? No, I mean, we don't wonder if Darth Vader's really out there. <laughs> Wow. Okay. A lot of a lot of movies being brought in here today. Hey, we've been so, off for a while, okay? This is this is what it's going to be like. Welcome back. <laughs> so that was the the book of giants. Um in in that the giants are like the main characters, but they're also they end up being condemned, kind of a, a little bit of an anti-hero situation despite the fact that they didn't really have a choice in being made. You know, they were just the offspring of the watchers and the the women. They still uh, end up being a problem that needs to be dealt with so that's the book of giants um the last big one that we'll talk about is the book of jubilees which again any if you've dug into you know the world around the bible at all you've probably run into this one it was um one of the most well-known and influential texts i'd say that didn't um wasn't canonized but if you read it i mean it's it really tracks right along with genesis very closely i mean my understanding of the word jubilee isn't that like every what was it four years seven years you give the land let the land rest. You release. Yeah, the year of jubilee. I think is you. every forty nine years, and it's when every yeah all the slaves are like freed and all that kind of stuff. Oh right, but there wasn't there like a rest year every. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seven years. So does that have? And that's the same word. Does that have anything to do with yeah, the book of jubilee? Yeah, the book of jubilees is inc- is incredibly concerned with um, the timing of things, and so it's essentially trying to give the backstory for a lot of the kind of random rules that are brought up in in genesis so if you know if genesis says so on the seventh day you know god rested then jubilees might have a whole section about why it was on the seventh day that god rested and like they're very uh, it's it's very much just trying to explain the why behind um, a lot of the the rituals and the routines and the the timing the seasons the festivals of the jewish people so jubilees really emphasizes the humans punishment in in the intermixing of the watchers and and the women um and and it also expands what some of these other texts do on the when the when the watchers and the he, women mate they don't just um, create offspring they also sh- share knowledge like the divine beings transmit a lot of knowledge to the the women and then they share it with the rest of the people it's things like um, sorcery and the understanding of you know the sun and the moon and things like that. Um, which are later given kind of a bad rap. Like, actually, if you think about it, there's um, there's a very underlying, subtle um, trope of women being kind of this mystical, like, witch figure. And it, a lot of it comes back to ancient stories like this, where the women are the ones given this this knowledge that ends up being kind of evil and twisted, and it's unnatural for them to have. So, so yeah, the Book of Jubilees also expands on this story of of the Watchers, and and then lastly, um, the most fragmentary, but the one that I have to bring up is the Genesis Apocryphon, 
um, which some of you've heard me talk about um, on almost heretical and utterly heretical. It's this text that we didn't know about until we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, we have uh, several, I mean, several chapters of it, but the very, very opening of it has this brief, I mean, it's very fragmentary. So we're talking about tiny pieces of parchments. We're just pulling out words here and there for the opening of this text. Um, and the word watchers is one of those words. And so we immediately are like, oh my goodness, there's another telling of the watchers story. Um, and there's, there's a couple other fragments that are really hard to decipher. It's in Aramaic and, um, there's, you know, scholars have different opinions on what, what the words are saying, but they, they think that it's referring to the, you know, the women marrying and mating with, um, with the watchers. Oh, Nate's pulling up pictures of the scroll here oh yeah if you search genesis apocryphon oh Google, so you're right like, like yeah those like cl- click on that first image this <laughs> one yeah i mean these are you know they're two thousand year old pieces of parchment that they're trying to unroll so if you look at the um the far yeah like up in side that, there up in that corner some of the some of it is absolutely Ooh, this photo I looks kind of old too like this must have been from what was this 40s, 50s. Oh, uh, yeah, the 40s is when they were first discovered. And the, what's so in this? Picture, in this picture's look, probably from the 50s or. 60s. I'm going to try to describe it since this is not a video podcast. Those of you on Patreon might be watching this on video, but for all for everyone else, uh, not to get too into the details of a photo that we're looking at, <laughs> and you're not. <laughs> there's like a box next to the the so the, to paint the picture. There's like a the scroll is kind of rolled out, but very fragmented and then on one end it's like literally the lines where the ink was or whatever mm-hmm. it was being used has kind of kept the the parchment together but that's all so it, it is. almost it's looks like, like it almost looks like bubble words like around the, the 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 ink because that's the only part of the parchment that has didn't fall apart but then there are these scraps in a box and there's scraps sort of around the edge of the the main portion of the the scroll and I'm just like, man, how many how many ideas are in that little box right there that we don't mm-hmm. we might not know because they're like the stuff you pull out of the fireplace after you're done, yeah. done with the fire. And and I mean the scholars, you know, these pieces fall out. Whoever did this the first times, they're doing it as carefully as they can, but these pieces fall out, and uh, and yeah, you pull one out, and it might say like, and he, or it might say. And, you know, then they or the watchers. So, you know, that's how we end up with these just words here and there, too. <laughs> I don't know why he's your Nate's just scrolling through pictures of Genesis Apocrypha on, on Google. And somehow there's one that just has a big Star Wars logo. So I'm not the first one to see these connections. We will go into that some other time. Oh, it's <laughs> Star Wars <laughs> episode 3.3, the Genesis Apocrypha on Star Wars and the canon. All right. I'm going to have to look into this. Somebody beat me to it. Uh, anyway, so the Genesis Apocryphon, um, it's very similar to Jubilees in a lot of ways, uh, scholars believe. Um, one of the most similar ways, and this is kind of how I ended up getting interested in it, um, is its inclusion of women in the, in the way it tells the stories. So if you've listened to our women series, you've kind of walked through this with us before of like how to look at a text and see see the things that are there and the things that are not there. So if we go back to um, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, these verses that we're talking about, let's just 
think about the women for a second as we read this. It says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of human were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Da, 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 da. The Nephilim well, right were there on even, too. Like, they just married anyone they chose. Like It's very mm-hmm. much like uh, the men are just going and picking this uh, strawberry out of a field kind of a thing, you know? Like, <laughs> Yeah. It's like, oh, I want that one. Sure. Yep. Yeah. And similarly, verse four says, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were heroes of old. So yeah, if I was to ask you like, what did, like, what did the women think? Like, how do the women feel about this? Uh, Yeah. Don't, we don't know. No idea. Don't know. Like, we don't know. We don't know if they you know, we're like, oh yeah, let's bring it on, bring these divine beings down. You know, I'm sick of these mere mortals. Or if they were, you know, terrified. And I mean, obviously this is all a story. I don't believe that. I don't believe that these women were actually real and that they were actually being mated with by divine beings. But in the, in the story, there's still no acknowledgement of like, these women are also, you know, important characters in the story who should have some kind of agency or at least some kind of acknowledgement of where they were at. Turns out... It's potentially divine rape, right? Um, Oh, yeah. We don't have... there, too. Yeah, we don't have any indication from verse 4 or really anywhere in the story here that they wanted this, right? That there was (laughs) consent, which... Yeah, well, and that is a... ...of the text, but... It's not there, right? Oh no, but you're 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 getting to the something that became very concerning to the ancient reader. That exact question is what what was the role of the women? Like, so I bring that up to say Genesis is often the most silent when it comes to the stories of women, um, and I think we've talked about that before when it comes to like Sarah and Abraham, the story where they go down to Egypt. Sarah's given no voice at all in a story of her own trafficking, essentially back and forth. There's she doesn't have a single line. And, and there's no there's no acknowledgement of what she might have been feeling. So ancient readers found that to be a problem, and they did expand that story. Actually, the Genesis Apocryphon is one of the most significant expansions of that, but we talk about that back in the women's series, pretty sure, so we, can go, we won't dive into that right now. But Genesis is one of the most silent, and as um, time went on, as the centuries passed, by the time you get to the Second Temple period, because of a, a lot of reasons— one being that maybe the influence of like Hellenistic culture and Greek culture, where those the literature is just a little more elaborate. But another being um, the importance, this message of an endogamy of marrying within your group, suddenly raises the importance of the women in the equation. Like the, who you marry matters, the woman you're marrying matters, and so um, they start to be more concerned about who are these women and and what are they doing. So both in Jubilees and in the Genesis Apocryphon, um, there are genealogies where the women are also included. Like it will say, you know, and then, I'm just making this up off the top of my head, but then Shem, you know, son of Noah, went and found a wife. Her name was Milchah. She was the daughter of Reuben. You know, it's like it's actually because they're trying to emphasize that marriage within a group matters. The women all suddenly have identities, and they're the, if it's a good character, then their wife is from the right tribe, and if it's a you know bad character, then they're intermarrying. And you know, while obviously they're you know we don't hold to these beliefs about endogamy today, it because they were concerned with that, they without even really realizing it are giving identity and thus like more um, 
what's the word more the the women become more visible suddenly in the stories not because these writers are ancient feminists they weren't going in going oh man how do we give the women some more you know space here they just were emphasizing the fact that both the man and the woman in the marriage are important and because of that we end up with more emphasis on women which is cool so then when you come to a story like this with the watchers these same writers are are suddenly very concerned with yeah what was the role of the women in this um and that those questions have importance for how women were seen afterwards so so the book of watchers the book of giants are more on the side that the women like they're not super upfront about it although i mean no, i take that back. okay editor cut that the book of watchers the Book of Watchers and the Book of Giants are a bit more condemning of, of the women and that they kind of seduced these divine beings and brought this turmoil down upon the world. And that's obviously not something that most women would be thrilled with, being essentially kind of blamed for everything that happened. And thus, you know, the evil, much of the sin that came to the world and then the flood. So the Book of Giants and the Book of Watchers um, condemn the women more. And this is also seen in some texts that are written even a bit later. The Testament of Reuben and the writings of Tertullian. They write literally for women. Evil are women, my children. And since they have no power or strength over man, they use wiles by outward attractions that they may draw him to themselves. That's from the Testament of Reuben. Or Tertullian calls women the devil's gateway. And obviously... This is not not the first time that we're hearing about, you know, women being seen as seducers. I mean, it's this huge trope that has been incredibly harmful to to women um, really ever, ever since. And this isn't the beginning of it, but it's definitely, I mean, it's several thousand years ago already. So it just goes to show um, that women have often been cast in this light, um, often because of a story like this that didn't really happen but they were using it as a way to explain other things that were going on. Um, so it's just really unfortunate how things like that can play out. But the Genesis Apocryphon is a little, it's like I said, very fragmentary, but there's this one fragment that's um, very hard to make out. Like I said, this is Aramaic. Um, scholars have only been looking at these fragments for you know less than a hundred years. So there's a lot still going into it. But one of the readings of this tiny fragment is they think it might say they would not ally themselves by marriage. The they being um, a female they. So so this is, I mean, potentially a huge difference. The Genesis Apocryphon might actually be telling a story in which the women d are resisting the, the marriage and don't want this. Obviously, it still ends up going through. And that's not too crazy to imagine because Genesis Apocryphon is also one of the only texts in the ancient world that tells the story of Sarah and Abraham, where Abraham's offering Sarah to the Pharaoh. In in the Genesis Apocryphon, Sarah protests that and is pushing back against Abraham and saying, I this I don't want to do this and you know, please don't make this happen. That's not told almost anywhere else. So Genesis Apocryphon is already kind of seen as this text that tends to diverge the other way and give the women in the story more voice and more agency. So I find that really fascinating that there's potentially a story out there where the watchers are, um, yeah, like you said, essentially performing a divine rape on these women unwillingly. 
Um, one of the reasons I find that so fascinating is because the Watcher's myth is seen in the ancient world, and you guys probably talked about this in your early episodes too. It's one of the one of the stories that gives kind of the etiology or the the beginning origin story of sin. Like we are very familiar with the fall being the the story of sin, you know, the snake, temptation, Eve eats the apple, Adam, that, that's where sin comes from. But in the ancient world, that's one of the stories. But the Watcher's myth is actually potentially more influential on that um, on that front. Like they see that the you know the the, the knowledge, the kind of divine. I mean, demon, demonic's not the right word. That's not really the, what they had going. But these, this divine, this divine transmission of information that ends up, you know, creating so many problems in the world. Like that's uh, for a lot of the ancient people. That's where this comes from. So, okay. So let's talk about like who's blamed here. So if we go with our, you know, normal sin story, the fall, the the apple. Like Eve usually gets the the short end of the stick here. If she's the one who's tempted and you know, and, and then she tempts Adam. So it's generally been considered, you know, th- because of the woman. I mean, Paul's pretty clear about that. So thanks. And then, but then if we go to the Watcher's story, it could go one of two ways. Like either, oh, it's the women's fault again. You know, they seduced these divine beings and they brought this down upon us. Or if the story's told another way, this Genesis Apocryphon way. What if it was that these divine beings just came and just did this? to the to the women and then to humanity. And again, these are just stories. But if they're if they're setting a perspective on how the world is the way it is and how it got that way, I would so much rather or just just think about, I mean, for those of us who grew up, you know, in the church, I'm very familiar with the concept of sin and have you ever ever considered the idea that maybe sin wasn't human's fault? Like, no, that's never crossed my mind. Like, what a different perspective that would be on the world if collectively we all saw sin as something that was done to us, that we then had the maybe, you know, we had to take responsibility to try to get rid of it. eradicate. But but rather than seeing ourselves as this innately, you know, we are the innately sinful ones who caused all these problems. Like, what if we were the victim in the situation and then, you know, then we have to come together and figure out, you know, what to do from there. But I just feel like that would be such totally a different, different. perspective. Yeah. Like, I don't, I almost don't even know, you know, how to, where to start with it. But it's like someone has a script for a movie and they're pitching it, right? And they're like, then the, then the villain, da, 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 da. And then you're like, what about this? What if we do it a completely different way? And there's like, the villain comes in and attacks. It's like a totally different script. It's a totally different mm-hmm. movie, it's <laughs> that story. completely different script. And how would we feel about ourselves now instead of drawing this chasm? Let's say that, you know, it's, it's still the same picture, right? Where you got that one cliff on this side, you got the cliff on this <laughs> side, there's a separation from God, but, and humans over here and God's over there. And how do you, but like, what if it wasn't this like, and look what you did to create that, yeah. that chasm, but just like yeah, any good story. Yeah, you created the chasm versus someone else did. Exactly. And like any good story, there needs to be, we need to fix or resolve this problem, but you're not the problem, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a totally different take on the gospel. Yeah. I mean, it in a lot of ways, yeah, it would completely change the, the need for us to be saved from ourselves. And it would more be for us to be saved from evil, I guess. Right. Which I think personally sounds a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is kind of like, 
we talk about atonement theories, right? And we did a lot of this back in, I want to say like the 20s, somewhere in the episode 20, 30 around there. But like one of the popular ones out there that, I mean, it's not that popular, but when you get into atonement theories, one of the the popular or more prevalent ones, um, and this is a guy named Mako Nagasawa, does a lot of work around this, and he was on the show. It's called medical atonement. It's this idea that there's a disease growing in you and needs to be cut out. You're, you didn't do the disease, mm. you know, obviously. No one even thinks that in a medical sense. It's not your fault, right? But you got to, we're cutting that out. We're eradicating this disease. We're trying to think of ways to never have this disease come back, kind of, you know, that it's that mentality of like a God is a physician trying to cut this out and we can team up and we can help or whatever. But I don't know. It's, it, it seems like it lines up with that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. That's really. Um, really interesting. Yeah. I just, I think it's, you know, again, to emphasize, it's not that these, you know, we're not trying to figure out what really happened. Like, did this story happen or did that story happen? Probably none of these stories happened, but the important thing is what stories were being told and how was that shaping the mentality of the people who read them and who knew them? The, the Genesis Apocryphon version um, where the women are potentially not at fault is probably was not, is not the dominant perspective. Like it's really interesting to find that and to see that maybe, I mean, if anything, it's, it's just mind boggling because like we just experienced, we've never thought of it that way before. But the reality is that wasn't the dominant story. The dominant story is the one that we were all taught. Well, there were two. <laughs> the one was the, you know, the fall in the garden. That's the one that most of us are familiar with. And the other is the story of the watchers where the, um, the women were either silent non-players really, or they actually did a, uh, had a, a negative role in the story. So those, when you take the, the fall and the watchers as the two main stories in which evil and sin, the condition of the world are, are the, those are the lenses through which the ancient readers would have seen the world. It's not hard to see why women were given a pretty bad rap for um, a lot of the, the problems in the world. And they were seen as untrustworthy and um, seductresses and um, became, yeah, seen as like witches. And um, it was, it's, not a, it's not a great start. And I just can't help but wonder how different a world would be if we had maybe had a start that was more like the other version of The Watchers. Who knows? Right. So, so yeah, in this little snippet of looking at Genesis 6, 1 to 4, um, I think, you know, we saw some interesting things about how gender um, is seen even in these texts, even where it's not necessarily it's meant to be written about, but it still is. Anytime where uh, male and female um, characters are written about, there's always some gendered assumptions included in there. And that's interesting to see. But most of all, I just I hope that it opens your eyes to the 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 ancient world of literature that's going on. That you can read a little a couple of verses in Genesis, and it and you might find out that in the ancient world, like this was a huge deal. And there's tons of other literature being written about these tiny verses that we just skim right over. And so just knowing that there's additional context on not just this, but tons of others. I mean, like I said, Jubilees kind of loves to expand on like the timing and the seasons. So a lot of verses you read in, in Genesis or in the Old Testament, it's going to, Jubilees is going to expand on those. Like, I just hope that that gives the world of, of the ancient writers a little more color and spice for you of like, there's, mm. there's so much going on. And, you know, this text is of Genesis is incredibly important. 
but it's not the only text that was happening at the time. And as the readers were reading it, they were also seeing holes and empty spaces and wanting to answer more questions. And, and so they wrote a lot to do that. So we we're in good company when we go at it critically and, and wonder, you know, wait, it seems like something's missing here or why, why is this happening here? Um, turns out a lot of times the ancient writers were having those same questions. Yeah. All right. Let's read a couple letters from listeners to close out the episode. Um, this one's from Charity. I'm going to paraphrase here a little bit. Not paraphrase. I'm going to uh, <laughs> trim it down a little bit because some some emails are a bit longer. But says, I grew up at an Adventist university. Now I teach in an Adventist school, kindergarten through second grade. It's lovely and small, and I can inoculate my students with bits of heresy while they're young, hopefully to protect them from complete loss of faith later on. (laughs) In days one through three of the Genesis 1 creation story, God is fixing the problem of chaotic lack of organization. Days four through six then fix the problem of lifelessness in the order of days one one through three. This all makes a lovely visual when put in a nifty little chart. I actually have my first and second graders do this every year and look at how Genesis 1 is explaining that God defeats chaos and brings life. The grave disaster of the flood isn't just that it covers the earth and kills everybody. The grave disaster of the flood is that it undoes creation very specifically and precisely. My students tend to think this is pretty cool, but grown-ups tend to condescendingly go, hmm, yeah, and then return to arguing about seven literal days of creation. That's, that's fun, Charity. Thank you. Oh, man. Yep. We tend to miss the point. And I love that you're doing that with those kids slaying a fountain. Like like you said, little bits of heresy in the hopes that they won't lose their whole faith later. Um, and I think a lot of us experienced that, too. Of If there had just been a little more nuance um, growing up, then maybe our beliefs would have been flexible enough to allow for change. Um, which, hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, that is, is where you're at. Well, even just like what we you just finished saying about this episode, right? With Genesis six, like just the, just the knowing that there's more there, or that we can challenge a little bit, or that we can provide maybe a different way of thinking about it, or like that it's it's open for debate and questioning. Yeah, that hopefully will will just create a different spirit amongst them uh, as they grow, which is awesome that you're doing that with kindergarten through second grade, right? I mean that's so young and such formative uh, formative years. So, um. Last one here that I'll read um, from Michael says, I just listened to your first episode on Genesis 1. I absolutely love the creation series. I absolutely love the creation stories of Genesis and find new things in them every time I read them. I wanted to ask what you thought about who God was talking to or with when God said, let there be light. And what, if anything, the language or speech element of God's calling creation into being says about God's ongoing relationship with creation, and perhaps also with meaning being intrinsic to creation. What I keep thinking is that language is more than a metaphor or symbol of connectedness. In a way, it's inseparable from connectedness. God's connectedness language calls all that is into existence. From its beginning, the universe is relational. It's interesting that speech and language comes back into play in the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, when removing it becomes the means to disconnect humanity from itself. Just curious to get your take on it, whether you get back to me or not. I wanted to say how much I've gotten out of your last few episodes, including the two on Genesis and the interviews with Neil deGrasse Tyson and Rain Wilson. Thanks, Michael. I mean, I think you just bring up another really cool angle. Like it's not, you know, sure, we didn't really talk about that, you know, connectedness and language and all of that, but I mean, there's there's an endless amount of things that that you can see when you read those stories, and I, I mean that's a really beautiful um, angle to be taking is to see you know God's 
speech as this you know act that does kind of connect everything and that's cool bringing it back to the tower of babel and the power of language i mean i mean i'm a linguist we could talk about that forever um but um yeah and who who's god talking to when he says let there be light i mean it's probably probably you could assume that it's the same person that he's talking to or persons when he says you know let us make man in our image and um, it's kind of this i mean it's a big ancient question for sure but the divine realm of of beings is uh, yeah is the most likely explanation for that um as well as in in hebrew the 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 jussive is what it's called it's this the let there be it's kind of it's just sort of a, a way a command can be given um so you know god may not have well i'm <laughs> so funny how quickly i slip back into thinking like okay well what actually happened i mean obviously even if this did happen no one was there to see it so us attributing what god said in these stories is not about trying to actually transcribe what god said and why god said it it's a it's a story about god and in that story they they say you know they feel like the most powerful way god could have created the world is to speak it into existence and so that's what they do awesome well, if this episode or other episodes you've heard have triggered questions or thoughts or just other ways of looking at something, shoot us an email. You can do that all at almostheretical.com or just a direct email contact at almostheretical.com. And on our website, there's lots of different ways to get connected. Join us on our next Zoom call where we're going to talk about stuff. And Shelby and I will be on there. Many other listeners are on there. People are talking all week long in our private Facebook group. We'd love to have you in some of that if you want to go deeper with the stuff we're doing and the content from the show or just other things that are coming to your mind as you're on your journey. Um, we have all that for you. So we're so glad that you're on this journey with us and come back, stick around, subscribe so that you can hear more about Genesis. And we'll get to the Tower of Babel actually. And, um, and more as Very we, soon. as we go here. All right. Thanks listeners. And we're so glad to be back and so glad to have you on this journey with us. And so glad that he napped for a whole hour. Yeah. <laughs>